This is The Monday Call, brought to you by New Zealand Funds. We're joined by David Bell, former Wharton Business School professor, author, and startup investor. He's been called the guru of the direct-to-consumer movement and the man who kickstarted the direct brand economy. As co-founder of Ideas Farm and referencing his experience as an early investor in leading brands, including Bonobos, Diapers.com, Harry's, Jet.com, and Warby Parker, among others, we discussed why consumer entrepreneurship is so accessible right now, what successful entrepreneurial businesses are doing well, and why, how Idea Farm Ventures decides which companies to invest in, and what advice he has for New Zealand startups and investors. We began by asking David how he started his journey from academia to venture investment. Well, you know, uh, great question, 100%. So starting at the real start, I was actually born in the deep south um, in New Zealand. And this might be fun for some of our listeners. Lived down the street, where well, my parents did, from the fellow Burt Munro in the, uh, the famous Kiwi movie, The World's Fastest Indian. Uh, and then my dad changed jobs, moved to Auckland. I got three younger brothers. We all grew up in Auckland, went to Auckland Uni. And was just really fortunate to be at Auckland Uni. There was like um, some very good professors there and kind of a chain of students going through what was then the MCOM program. And they're all wandering off to the United States and they're all actually really good students. So one went to Wharton, one went to University of Chicago, one went to Northwestern and then sort of build up uh, to the guy that was one step before me. Um, we used to call him the boy wonder because he was sort of so bright. So this Kiwi guy, Duncan, you know, applied to all the top universities in the United States, Stanford, MIT, Wharton, Columbia, got accepted to every single one. Um, and I was his office mate. So I was sort of twiddling my thumbs. What am I going to do? I'm 21, I think, at the time. Um, gee, going to the United States, that could be kind of fun. So he sort of encouraged me. And off the back of the success of the others, I applied and then um, wound up at Stanford, I think in large part because the other three were so good. And then Duncan turned down Stanford and I was like the next guy in the queue. So they thought, well, we better, you know, get one of these Kiwis. So that's that's what got me to the United States originally to go to Stanford to uh, study for a PhD at the business school. Well, Stanford's... Um, into con- oh, you, you go, James. I was just going to, I was, I was just going to, to put into context, what year is this, David? Because going to Stanford, San Francisco, you know, during a tech... I guess revolution. Must well, be <laughs> when I was, yeah, when I was a student, James, it was in the early '90s. So I was at Stanford from '91 to '95. Uh, and another sort of funny Kiwi story: I had a great professor there, Dave Montgomery, and uh, he told me he had this fantastic student, you know, quite a few years before me, but a fantastic student in the MBA program by the name of Hugh Fletcher. And he said this guy was such a good student that he wanted uh, <laughs> Hugh to go on to the PhD program, was trying to recruit him. And I guess Hugh had apparently, according to this Professor Dave Montgomery, said, well, you know, I've got to go back to New Zealand. I've got some family business to run. Not realizing, of course, it was this got massive, a small little family business to run. <laughs> massive yeah, it's not a big deal. So, yeah, it was, <laughs> so early 90s, James, was when I was there as a student. So yeah, that's sort of the um, early 90s, going to San Francisco, not really not really probably aware what is about to happen in, in that city over the course of no. the next 30 years. Not at all. And I think sort of two other things. One's more of a personal issue to Stefan's point. One thing I didn't realize going in is there's kind of an expectation if you're in a PhD program is that you go on into academia. Um, You know, if you're in the Stanford MBA program, you could start a company, work for Google, do whatever you want. Uh, And of course, you're not compelled to do this, but there's an expectation on the part of the professors and the institution. Boy, you know, you came in, you had a scholarship, you know, there's only a few people. We trained you. We want you to go and teach at NYU. That's the kind of thing. And that, that didn't really 
click until I was about halfway through. I was obviously fine with um, with going down that path. But I remember, you know, I had a very sophisticated classmate from India who'd done computer science at MIT, and he was introducing all of us to, to your point, uh, James, all the early browsers, like there was Mosaic and all this other cool stuff. You could search this thing called the World Wide Web and, you know, some other guy figured out how to hack his email so you could send your advisor an email at three in the morning so they'd think you were, you know, analyzing data. So it was it was fun times. The beginning of something massive. Indeed. <laughs> um, and so you, I guess you, you, you continued on from there. You completed your PhD at Stanford and then you went on into academia for a while. How did, how did, that, how did that happen? Yeah, so there was a natural funnel, Stefan, if you're in a PhD program when you get to sort of one year before graduation. So usually around July 4th, the big American holiday, you sort of mail out or email out your resume to a bunch of universities that are hiring or places that you might want to work. And of course, now, you know, um, it's so much more competitive to get those jobs because you'll have someone who's got a PhD in physics. It's like, gee, I could actually teach finance because I know how to do math and I could get a job as opposed to being a postdoc, you know, back in the day wasn't quite so competitive, but you send out your resume and then you hope that um, different institutions might want to interview you. So you go to a big conference, the American Marketing Association. Uh, my year was actually in San Francisco. And then you'll kind of have uh, meetings on the hour, every hour, you know, all day Saturday, all day Sunday, sometimes Monday. And then hopefully out of that process, you know, some people will then invite you to the campus. Then it's getting pretty serious. You'll get flown out to NYU, for example. And you'll be there a couple of days and you'll meet faculty and you'll present your research. And then hopefully sometime around Thanksgiving, the other big holiday, uh, you might get an email or a phone call where they're putting together an offer to offer you, uh, offer you a job. So I was going through that process basically from July through, you know, December. And then I was fortunate, you know, to get some, you know, decent offers come in. And then it was a matter of, okay, where the heck do I, <laughs> you know, where, where would I like to go uh, as the next step? And so you've obviously taken your career in a particular path and explored, um, which I guess the meat of this conversation was the, uh, that sort of intersect between the physical and the virtual. And is, is, did that at that point inform your um, decision about the university work with, work with, or is that something that evolved once you kind of launched further into it? Yeah, great question. That's something that's really evolved. So, you know, to go back to what James said, when I was a graduate student at Stanford, there was a whole cottage industry in marketing academia, which I was a part of, um, of people who did quantitative research using data from effectively supermarkets or retail. So, you know, barcode scanner data. And you could build a demand model that said, you know, Coke drops the price. Do people switch in from Pepsi? Do they drink more? Do they change stores? All the basic sort of demand dynamics of consumer behavior. Um, and then when I was a faculty member at Wharton, the first couple of years, I was still doing that. But then this thing called the Internet starts rolling along. And what I found fascinating about that is when you're focused on physical retail and physical stores, the good news is you know where your customers are. They're in a very predefined area close to that store. The bad news is the market's relatively limited. And then this e-commerce thing's the converse. The good news is, you know, you sell into the whole U.S. The bad news is who the heck's ever heard of diapers.com? So... I thought just from an intellectual point of view, this is really interesting because now you can have retailing without constraints. And of course, the old saw in retailing, you know, location, 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 where you physically locate determines everything. In this new world, it came to dawn on me, it's not the physical location of where you are because now you're virtual, but the physical location of your customers 
uh, still matters for how you get uptick because their physical location tells you about who they are, what their preferences are, and also what their constraints are. So there's a funny story. The first guy to ever buy a book, I think, on Amazon.com, he was a really avid reader, uh, but he was about 50 miles from the nearest bookstore. So the internet, obviously, to him, was a tremendous innovation because now instead of schlepping you know, 100 miles there and back, he can have the store come to him. So that was a, sort of a natural transition from studying consumer behavior and retail and physical environments now into, oh boy, now there's this virtual environment. What's different about it? Was that journey obvious in terms of the consumer going onto the, dig, onto the digital space? Because it, I guess the trustworthiness of the internet back then, you know, we're just learning how to use it. And I was just watching a Netflix um, series, Better Call Soul, and, and it was sort of going flashback in time where this woman was using the internet for the first time and, and she just thought it was miraculous that she could get up YouTube videos of cats, let alone, you know, going, going the extra mile of buying things online. Cats are pretty well, special. Like, I mean, cats, yeah. are, cats are pretty special. <laughs> I think the I funny mean, thing there, James, but, is, but is, you know, is... What, what I was just going to say, even in 2022, you know, cats are still dominating the internet. But sorry, I'll let you finish your thought and then I'll, I'll jump back in. No, no. Uh, if I had started a YouTube video with cats, I think I'd be uh, um, retired on the beach somewhere up in, in Northland. But um, because it's been a pretty successful yes, avenue of, uh, of internet. Yeah, and I think actually one of the apocryphal uh, fintech companies started with guys, you know, taking photographs of cats and hundred dollar bills. I forget which one it is, but it's one of the ones that's gone on to to go public. But no, to, to answer your question seriously, I think there's sort of two considerations there. One was all the plumbing at the time. So taking payments, doing delivery, having trust, like all of those things were fairly nascent. Um, and if you think about how the internet use for e-commerce evolved across countries, you had countries, say, for example, India, where you'd have cash on delivery because people didn't want to pay or they didn't have credit cards. And so one of the big opportunities early on and even today is how do you make things like payment, delivery, trust, return, infrastructure, like building those pipes. So as you might uh, recall, I guess, as we all know, you know, Amazon, when it started, really started with books. And the reason you start with books is a book is a very simple product to understand. Whether it's online or offline, it's effectively the same thing. There's nothing tactile about it. There's no shock value. You know, when this shows up, maybe the shirt doesn't fit or the shoes don't fit and so on. And so I think those early companies tended to focus on very, very simple products, James, with what I'd call only really having digital attributes. It's a bit of jargon, but I think it's very helpful. A digital attribute is some product feature that whether I tell you about it online or offline, you're equally happy. You're not confused about it. A non-digital attribute would be, you know, how's the taste of the banana or how ripe is the peach? That, that's harder to communicate. Um, and that's where a lot of the opportunity is using technology to get people over the hump around non-digital attributes. Um, and then the second thing, I guess, in a developed market like the US, there was still issues around trust, but probably less pronounced because your Amex will refund you or there's ways to get around um, if that didn't happen. But I remember there's kind of a, a famous and very funny cartoon you guys might have seen it in 1993, came out in the New Yorker. And there's this little dog and he's up on his laptop, you know, banging away on the keys. And he's looking down to his little dog friend and he says, you know, on the internet, nobody knows you're a dog. <laughs> and that was kind of that era where, you know, there was anonymity <laughs> and maybe sort of lack, lack of trust. But as those things were overcome, and in most developed markets they are, it's still really interesting to me that e-commerce penetration, even in a 
at the top end is probably no more than 15 to 20% on average across all consumption categories. You know, maybe it's 80% for uh, contact lenses and, you know, half a percent for eggs. But this sort of tells you now with the benefit of hindsight that the physical world still matters tremendously uh, for commerce. And so the development of e-commerce, that Amazon example is a really good one where actually it wasn't because Bezos thought that all the bookshops needed disrupting. It was because actual the, the book itself was easy to do e-commerce because there was less, I guess, friction in the transaction because you order a book, you kind of know what it's going to look like, can't really get damaged in the post and the value perhaps isn't that high that if it does go wrong, it's it's not the end of the world rather than him driving to his local bookstore and think, hey, this is a really bad experience. I can make this better. Yeah, 100%. I think that's a great insight because if you look at other companies that have been developed, they might have been addressing different issues. So um, just off the top of my head, you know, say Casper Mattresses, for example, when that was a hot company selling you direct-to-consumer mattresses, the thing that was really attacking is buying a mattress was a bit of an awful buying experience. You know, you're in some showroom somewhere, you're trying to sit on different beds, some guy's trying to upsell you. And so you're exactly right. When it started, there was really nothing wrong with the buying experience. It was more about finding a product that really at the time could fit the medium. And maybe for some people, they had a preference of not going into stores. But now I think with uh, the evolution of e-commerce, we've seen companies that have you know attacked certain kinds of customers. You mentioned Bonobos at the start, Stefan. So, you know, men are really great customers <laughs> online because they sort of just get into a rut or into a habit and they're sort of quite loyal. And in fact, even the name Bonobos, right? It's named after the Bonobos monkey deliberately uh, because Andy Dunn, the founder of Bonobos, sort of said, you know, men are like monkeys when they shop. You know, Stefan wants to go and get five ties, three pairs of pants and two shirts and, and be done. Um, and then there are other cases where, you yeah, know, the internet's year, about... Right. <laughs> you know, going after a broken category or going after a certain kind of um, customer. I mean, the revolution. Me in the dollar, yeah, the Dollar Shave Club is. I mean, I've, I think I've subscribed to that four years ago, and I've never. Why would you cancel it? <laughs> it does the same thing on as it says at the box as it did at the start, and it's easy and it arrives and. You you yeah, you've used the word revolution and and consumer behavior and 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 business models would you mind expanding on why you think it, it it amounts to that i mean at one level it is obvious but um there are dimensions to it i think that uh are not so obvious so i think the reason why i would use that term is that particularly in the space that i'm in which is consumer investing consumer and retail it's very very accessible to to everybody it's a very democratizing form of entrepreneurship um, and that you see that every day as an investor. And what do I mean by that? So, of course, you've got people who are tech geniuses, right? Like Elon Musk, uh, you know, people who are incredible coders, people who can build phenomenal technology and things like that. And that takes real, very, very special expertise. And I'm not downplaying, but I'm rather sort of emphasizing the positive of consumer entrepreneurship, just to the point that was made by, um, by James. You know, Michael Dubin had no real experience in razors. He's the founder of Dollar Shave Club. You know, he's just happened to be a very funny guy who was kind of annoyed at the fact that his razors were too expensive. And so all the, what you call enabling factors, so a payment mechanism, a contract manufacturer, someone to build a website, all of those things are in place. So if you just happen to be a person anywhere in the world, New Zealand, LA, New York, wherever, 
um, and you have something that sort of dissatisfies you, it's bad for the environment, it's bad for you, it doesn't work properly, you now have an ability to address that problem in a way that you couldn't do it before. And so that's why I think it's it's a real revolution. And I, I love an old quote since we're in New Zealand, you know, Edmund Hillary, when he and Tenzing Norgay, you know, ascended Mount Everest, um, that was sort of lauded by the press and the contemporaries, boy, you guys are amazing. And um, what he says, well, actually, you don't have to be an extraordinary person, you know, to do an extraordinary thing. You just have to be an ordinary person who's sufficiently motivated. And so Michael Dubin, you know, built a billion dollar company in four years because he was an ordinary guy, but he was very motivated uh, by the opportunity and the pain point. How, how do you think consumers have changed in the process? I mean, it, at one level, I look at my shopping habits and they're not that great, but my family's is. And, um, and you know, we buy so much online now and, uh, you know, to the, you know, groceries, an example, but almost everything turns up at the doorstep. And I, I don't know to what extent this is a reflection of, um, you know, consumers at large, but um, how, how, how do you think it's sort of embedding itself in the community, this shift to the virtual? So I think there's really two things there. Uh, the first thing I think consumers really are fundamentally looking for products and services that are really better. And by that, I mean better for you, better for the planet kinds of things. So you're having conversations around now, things like carbon negative rather than even carbon neutral, or, you know, the food that you eat has different kind of sustenance or, um, macro profile. So I think there's a, definitely a, a seeking out or, you know, a company here in Los Angeles called Bite, B-I-T-E. It's effectively like a little Altoid pill as toothpaste. And why is that? Because you take the plastic out of the ocean and the plastic tubing and the chemicals. So I think there's sort of a groundswell of what I would call the psychographic of the millennial or the Gen Z consumer, um, which is wanting sort of better stuff. And that, that's affecting us. You know, I'm, I'm obviously not a millennial, I'm a Gen Z. Uh, and then the second part of that, as a Gen Z, I'm a Gen X, I'm going in the wrong direction with the alphabet today. Um, and then the second thing that you alluded to, I, didn't Stephane, want, I, did, I thought maybe San Francisco is making you feel younger. But... <laughs> well, you it's know, being here in, in California, <laughs> exactly. Being here in California, there's probably some doctor around the corner who can, you know, could be some sort of a surgery to you know, take, take a few years off. But the other thing that you alluded to, Stefan, that's really important too, is the, the mechanisms through which people are willing to buy has also changed. You know, people buy stuff on Instagram, people buy stuff through text message, people are, you know, e-commerce, people buy click and collect, buy online, pick up in store. So you've got these two tracks going at once where there's a seeking out of stuff that's better. And at the same time, are willing to sort of transact through multiple sort of sources or multiple channels or medium. And those two things are, you know, happening in parallel yeah um you mentioned in um a, a talk I, I, we saw about uh, bonding not branding and that i guess manufacturers um, producers uh, and and i guess people marketeers branding specialists um should think about it in that way do you want to expand on what what that what that means and why that's so important and how that sort of fits in with the change in dynamics Yes, this is, uh, you know, something I've been thinking about uh, for a long time. And I sort of first, you know, sort of stumbled into this idea probably four or five years ago where I was trying to reflect back and think about, you know, companies that succeeded, what have they done well in terms of building a brand? And, you know, brand is obviously very important. You know, there's 
lists around the world, you know, the value of the Apple brand just on its own is worth, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, meaning that if you put that logo on a product, you know, customers would ascribe value to it. So we know that brand is, is really critical. Um, but what I started to think about, again, to the point of this new way of consuming products and the new products and services coming out, is there was a nuance that I think is better captured by what are called bonding. So what's the definition of bonding? So bonding is a, is a close relationship that develops as a result of shared experiences. And brands that are successful now really have these sort of three pillars to them. First of all, you know, they work, but they also make people feel good and they allow consumers to show other people to whom they're socially connected that they're making good decisions. So, you know, people will post up, oh, you know, I'm wearing all bird shoes because, you know, they're good for the planet. Uh, and then second and third, you know, it refers to being sort of authentic or authentic and personable with your customers, sort of being relatable almost in a very human way. Uh, and the third part of that bonding piece is, you know, successful companies now will have communities that they engage with and communities that create content. So sort of scalable, engaged communities. So the bond is all about something that has emotional resonance and that has community. And that's very different from a top-down approach. Um, you know, if you think of traditional advertising, since James mentioned uh, shaving, you know, if you think about Gillette, you know, amazing brand, amazing product, but built top-down from telling you, Gillette's the best a man can get and using traditional channels. You know, Michael Dubin, Dollar Shave Club is organic, bottom-up, relating to this particular guy who's the founder. So that's that's the nuance of difference that I think really in 2022 and beyond, there needs to be this really relatable, almost in a person-to-person -person sense of, of brands that are going to succeed. David, why do you think a lot of the successes of these companies like Dollar Shave Club, but a lot of the ones that you've been involved in, and 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 many others are all coming through the US, and and specifically even you know some of those top universities, you know Stanford being just, you know a um, an amazing I guess creator of of these people that think about I guess think about life and how we consume and how we relate to each other in different ways. Is it is it the education system is it just you just happen to have a lot of smart people in in a very um, small proximity? Is it is it the culture of the US? And why is it that other countries aren't aren't sort of being the thought leaders in a lot of this? And and that's a generalisation. You know, some great stuff coming out of the UK and Australia and, and and New Zealand, but just not to the same extent that you must see on a day to day basis when you're when you're in the US. And do you know why that is? Well, I think it's a great question. And 100%, you're absolutely right. There's phenomenal, you know, commercial entities, companies built across the world in all different kinds of countries and cultures. But if we created some sort of index or metric, I think we'd be right that the US sort of over indexes on the creativity and entrepreneurship and, of course, big outcomes um, for, for investors. I think there's really two things driving that. You know, one is very much a cultural phenomenon. So, you know, you would know traveling here a lot too, James, um, you know, on a superficial level, New Zealand and the US are very, very similar. You know, we probably watch similar kinds of content, listen to similar music. We obviously all speak English. Um, but beyond that surface similarity, there's a real difference, I think, in terms of mindset, whether it's consumers or whether it's entrepreneurs and investors. And people talk about this a lot, but, you know, sort of the risk tolerance and the willingness to fail. And actually, if you, you almost haven't been successful if you haven't at least failed a few times first. So, so I think that risk taking and that's supported by the culture, but it's also supported by the investing community. Uh, and then the second thing I think that you have a lot here is that people who are successful, 
rather than being sort of reviled or torn down or looked down upon. I mean, of course, there's always a little bit of that, you know, generally it's sort of held up as kind of icons in the culture and whether that's broadly across the United States or within a more isolated ecosystem, um, it occurs on both levels. So, you know, the fact that in 2010, you know, a bunch of guys at, at Wharton at the business school started Warby Parker, they then became sort of folk heroes for the, you know, the woman who showed up in 2015 and said, you know, I'm going to do the same thing, but I'll do it in this category. So you've got this sort of virtuous cycle of, you know, success wanting to be emulated by the next generation and the broader culture being supportive of that. And, you know, having lived here for a long time and we spoke uh, before the podcast, still not holding the passport, I better get the American passport at some point. Um, you know, I think it's no, it's, it's no coincidence that the only country that you ever hear prefixed by the word dream uh, is the American dream. And whether or not that's empirically true for everybody. It's certainly a belief that most people hold, certainly the immigrant community that comes here. So, you know, a lot of problems, obviously, um, in the United States, but I think that sort of notion, you know, encapsulated in the American dream is, is still is still available and still true for many people. When you come home, uh, if you, I'm assuming you still call New Zealand home, you've still got the accent, so you must do. Um, do, 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 you see, do you see a difference or, or feel a difference? In terms, because I think you're right, when I travel to the US, that the, the celebration of success is, is massive. Um, and like you say, you know, some people could take that as superficial, but actually I think it's just an ingrained culture. In New Zealand, we've, we've got a little bit more um, conservatism around success. And do you feel that when you, when you come home, when you're talking to businesses and, and and entrepreneurs when you're in New Zealand? I think, uh, James, generation, generationally, I see younger people um, who are more going out and, and taking hold of success and sort of trying to do things entrepreneurially. So, you know, I think about myself as an exer who was at, you know, Auckland University a few decades ago and the young people I meet now, whether they're working for sort of iconic New Zealand companies like Azuru, which is, you know, is the best, is a world-beating kind of entity uh, or doing their own entrepreneurial things, I think they're hungrier and, and more embracing of that journey, success or failure, than it was true for in my case. You know, you do a BCom and you go and work for one of the big four accounting firms or, or, or something of that nature. So I do see that that spirit is, is much more alive than it was. And then I think secondly, you know, the government's obviously doing a lot to help us too. You know, New Zealand's having a bit of a moment and people are looking to New Zealand as a place to either be domiciled and as, you know, we could probably name off a bunch of people who've come from, say, San Francisco technology scene or people with, you know, real deep expertise and investors uh, are now sort of plugging into New Zealand. So you've got infrastructure support that probably wasn't there 20 years ago. Still has some distance to, to travel, I think, but both of those factors uh, are making the country more US-like than it was certainly when I was a student. Are you, um, are, are you, you mentioned Zero, are, you, are there other um, Kiwi stories that sort of, you know, you're really oh, proud of? Um, yeah, And, and that you kind of hold up, hold up? Yeah. I mean, look, I think there's some fantastic stories uh, in New Zealand, not directly in my space, but if you think about sort of rockets, robotics, software, technology, you know, those kind of companies that have gone on to sort of global success in my own space of consumer and retail, you know, you think about a company like uh, uh, Allbirds, you know, of course, you know, stocks off a little bit, but still has done something really impressive. Um, you think about if, if, if Teak, 
uh, in the skincare space, um, being built out of, uh, out of Christchurch, amazing company. You think about Fix and Fog, uh, you know, peanut butter that's probably outselling, you know, two to one, whatever the next best is here, Justin's. Um, a company that I just saw very recently that I think was just awesome. Again, just really anchoring to consumer companies uh, that I know a little bit about and admire in New Zealand is a company called Wool Aid. Um, what Lou's doing is really impressive in the sense about 50 billion plastic band-aids are going into the environment every year. They're never going to biodegrade. And, you know, being a good Kiwi, she's come up with a merino wool band-aid or a plaster uh, that biodegrades in a few months and also has better properties in terms of healing. So I think across the board, um, you're seeing some real innovation coming out of, coming out of New Zealand. Yeah, um, we, 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 it's a theme that because we, I guess we get through this podcast, we get to talk with a range of people and um, that, uh, that sort of encouraging Kiwis to go out and get on with it and do it is, is something that um, is sort of a lot of, a lot of people who have been abroad really, um, you know, want to be a part of. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a funny cultural thing. I, I wonder if the internet has, um, uh, showcase the American mindset more to younger people, and, and that's you know is what's encouraging them. Yeah, I'm sure that certainly uh, has been a factor too, right? Because everything's so global, everybody's so connected, and so you know you might be a Kiwi entrepreneur and say, oh gosh, there was some you know somebody it, it cosmetics or you know t take a pick of coming drunk elephant, you know had a massive outcome for a billion dollars, and yeah. You know, we've got some special ingredients in New Zealand, or I've got a way of thinking about skincare that I could do that just as well. And so I think um, people are just more on top of what the trends are, but also what the opportunities are. And, and also, you know, you can look to emulate success that you're seeing across the globe. So for sure. And I think, you know, just to layer in a very um, sort of Kiwi angle to it, I think, you know, New Zealanders are just really good at stuff. Certain kind, I mean, we're really good at a lot of different things. We often don't like to talk about being good at, uh, at different things, but the DNA from our education system, from where we are geographically to, you know, excellence that we've achieved in a number of different domains, the DNA is there uh, to create these things. And what we're building up now is the, I think the infrastructure to help us do that from an investing point of view and, and other things that are needed. But also just the, um, I think, you know, the cultural shift that's saying, hey, this is actually really cool to do. You know, of course, it's cool to, if you're a young guy in New Zealand, be an all black and, you know, play it, play fullback and, you know, win the World Cup. That's awesome. But isn't it also cool to come up with some amazing product that people all around the world are using that's better for them, that's better for the environment? Uh, I mean, that's also amazing, too. So I think. In the US, back to James's earlier point, you know, someone like a Musk or a Bezos or an Oprah or Beyonce, I mean, they've kind of achieved a cultural status that's similar to what you would have for, you know, LeBron James or an athlete or a musician or a culture maker. But I think in New Zealand, we haven't really embraced typically our entrepreneurs on the same level that we would embrace our culture makers and our athletes. And I think that's also changing. You, you're um, now focused more on idea farm ventures, and as um, would you talk us through what, 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 what it does, and how how you kind of got into that. One hundred percent. So I'll start with the getting in. So um, through being a professor, I actually just got into this journey of you know helping students with ideas around companies, and then 
obviously not when they were students, but then they go on and graduate and then they might pick up the phone and say, oh, you know, we're, we're raising capital for, you know, company X, would you like to participate? So, oh, why not? So um, over a period of about, well, gosh, um, going back about 12, 13 years now, I just invested in a whole bunch of companies from some of them you mentioned, you know, diapers.com, jet.com, Harry's, Warby, Bonobos, Cotopaxi, a whole raft of these things. And I started to realize, oh, this is actually kind of fun. Um, and I had a few close friends who'd gone into the investor space. One is a quant a hedge fund guy who was actually was a professor and another guy I used to play rugby with who was an MBA who was doing sort of distressed assets, also doing a hedge fund. And, well, this could be kind of interesting. And I'd started to invest personally in, in funds myself. And so in 2015, I went to New York and I was working uh, just part time as a, as a venture fellow um, at a fund and learning the ropes. And my business partner at Idea Farm, he came from the banking world from Lazard, uh, focused on sort of M&A and the consumer space. And we've been friends for a long time. We just, you know, over a period of years sort of put our heads together and said, you know, we should set up an entity um, to continue our investing journey, but to do it on a larger scale because he had been investing per personally in service-based businesses, mainly in, in the Middle East. Uh, he's originally from Turkey and I'd been investing in all these product companies. And we said, gee, what if we put together a vehicle, uh, the vehicle's idea farm uh, to continue this and to build a team and, that's what we've been doing for the last uh, five years. But I guess the personal journey for me started, you know, considerably uh, longer before that. And so how do you originate the opportunities? Is it still through <laughs> a historical, you know, university connections? Or are you out there, you know, scouring the internet and, um, and, and other channels to, to, to find things? It's honestly actually more of the latter. Some of the former still happens organically just because I'm quite, you know, um, sort of still deep in the academic community. But what we say at Idea Farm, our, our sort of mantra with the team is that we seek, we don't screen. And what that means is we're actually quite academic in the way we think about things, hopefully academic in the good sense, not in the pejorative sense, but we'll have a particular uh, vertical that we'll look at. So say fix and fog I mentioned earlier. So we have a vertical we call authenticity of eating. And what does that mean? That means better for you, better for the planet, food and bev. And there could be a number of things under that around, you know, alternative proteins or flavors or, you know, a bunch of stuff. And then what we'll do is we'll sort of, uh, as a team, say, okay, we think there's a big opportunity in, you know, um, alternative waters or nut butters or whatever it is. And then we'll look out to see if we can find companies who are doing that. Um, and then if we can, we'll sort of chase down the founder and see if they're interested, if there's an opportunity to invest. And that, that opportunity is always in terms of a discussion around, you know, how can Idea Farm actually help? Because maybe it will dry up a little bit, but capital has been really plentiful, sort of money is money. Um, so that's how we do it, Stefan. Of course, we also have our own network, whether it's academics or branding agencies, design companies, people that we've built long-term relationships with that know what we're looking for, that will funnel us stuff. So there is a little bit of that, but we're not really set up to have, you know, very wide funnel that we then sort of screen those opportunities and say, hey, you know, it looks like we'd like to invest in James, but but not John. Uh, we've tried to invert that model a little bit. So you get, are you getting your hands dirty, David, in these businesses and getting on the board and helping them with their strategy? Or is it a um, like the idea investing in the people and letting them go for it and watching fr from a distance? 
<laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's absolutely the former, uh, getting your hands dirty and getting it involved. Obviously, there's a correlation between the check size and sort of how involved we are. But um, the initial conversation with the founder will be, okay, you know, what keeps you up at night? Where do you really need help? And if they tell us, for example, you know, we're a bit concerned about, you know, maybe the brand is not where it is, we'll say, okay, we could bring in an agency to do that, or we could do things internally as a team. Um, and this was really born out of my days at the university. So, you know, with the Warby guys, the big issue was if you're going to sell glasses online and you know that Luxottica is making these things for $20 in China and selling them for 300 you know, where, where should you be priced? And so I sort of helped the guys sit down and do something called a conjoint study to try and be more analytical around what that number should be. So it, it could be everything from that to issues around branding to, you know, running experiments or analyzing data. It's really a whole raft of things. But, yeah, we're very much, uh, I would say, almost like a like a private equity approach to early stage where we are hands on and we're doing a bunch of stuff with uh, the founders, maybe helping them unlock retail helping them think about omni-channel. So really a raft of things. Sounds, it sounds, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like you put a lot of emphasis on the product rather than, as, or maybe as much as the person. Some investors we speak with are founders first, and, you know, if, if they're passionate and they, uh, you know, they, they, there's an energy and an intensity and conviction there that they buy into, then it almost doesn't matter what they're doing. Whereas um, it sounds to me like you kind of go the other way and you say, well, look, we've we found a niche or, or a vertical that you think has legs and we'll find the, the people that serve that the best. It's a very interesting way to think about it. I mean, I think it's more of a, a balance between the two, but I, I totally agree. If you're in pure tech, uh, you know, you just sort of find the genius who, like, for example, I'll give a tangible example because I met him actually in New Zealand. Uh, speaking at a conference, um, I forget the fellow's last name, but like every other guy you meet, his first name's David. Um, but he's the founder of a company called Masterclass. David Bellow, I'd say. Um... <laughs> really engaging guy. And he came out of Stanford, I think, with a technology background. Anyway, he was telling the story of... You know, sorry, what master... was he the founder of, David? Oh, sorry, James. Uh, Masterclass, the online education. Masterclass. So it's kind of like Netflix meets education in the sense that you could take a class from Steph Curry on how to shoot a three-pointer, take a class from Malcolm Gladwell on how to write a book. So it's kind of tastemakers, influences people with expertise and very, very high production value uh, at Masterclass. And what David said was that he just had somebody in his network who literally gave him half a million bucks and said, do whatever you want before he even had an idea. Um, and I think there's absolutely great backable companies in that space. In our space, because you know, the exit distribution. So it all kind of fits together. If you think this, the exit distribution for a consumer company is going to be probably a hundred to 500 million. Let's say you're not going to have a $50 billion peanut butter company or a $50 billion, you know, uh, eyewear company. I mean, the, the, the range is much smaller. And so what that says is, you know, uh, efficient capitalization, not too many rounds of financing, it's got to be a great product that's differentiated, built with a great brand. And yeah, of course, the founder is, is really, really important. Can that founder attract capital, attract a great team? Do they have a vision to build and everything else? But there's probably a little bit less, and not to denigrate the founders, a little bit less of that because the building blocks for consumer are a little clearer. You know, is the product differentiated? How is the brand built? What's the pricing strategy? So there are things that you can control a little bit 
that are not necessarily going to guarantee success, but are going to reduce the loss ratios and the odds of failure uh, in a way that's a little bit different to the tech dynamic. So a little bit of a long answer, but hopefully that leans into why, of course, founders still is important, but all this other stuff becomes really important as well. It's probably a good segue into the market at the moment, David, because, I mean, on the listed markets, which is where we deal a lot, is or, or all all our um, capital is invested in listed markets, you know, there's been one, a huge amount of volatility and also uh, uh, valuations have, have come down. And um, for those in the, I guess, private assets, it's um, still volatile, but you don't have that day-to-day stress of your of your of of at least seeing your share price movement. But not not to say that it's still not stressful because, as you alluded to, you know the the amount of money circulating in in, in private equities, perhaps, and and ventures a lot less, and so there's going to be less of it to go around. How are you finding the space now? Do you do you see the this? current environment as a as a massive opportunity um, for people with the ability to deploy capital are you hunkering down with the businesses that you're invested in or or how are you um looking at let's let's skip 2022 it's been tough let's let's go to 2023 and how, how are you sort of visualizing what that's going to look like you know i think there's really tremendous uh, opportunity because i think what's happened is there's been a little bit of a correction and a little bit of a back to reality you know it wasn't so long ago even in in our space and consumer you know you might have some someone showing up with a powerpoint presentation with no product and you know wanting a a 10 million dollar you know pre-revenue valuate and and actually be able to command some of those things just because the market was very very frothy um, so I think you're seeing, you know, much more of a return to, to reality. I think you're also seeing, um, you know, founders being more realistic and being just more judicious with the capital that they had. Again, speaking a little bit to, just to the own space, our own space in consumer and retail. Um, in the old days, the 1.0 version of the space, you know, there was a real arbitrage through digital. You know, you could basically spend money and acquire customers at pretty reasonable costs. And then you could go on to recover that and VCs were willing to keep writing those checks through various rounds. I think now people have got a lot smarter about ways in which customers could be acquired organically and a lot lot, uh, a lot, cheaper. So you have those two forces coming together that, you know, businesses are starting to be more right-sized. And I think, you know, for the companies that are set up with really good products that can ride out the next six to 12 months, you know, there'll be real opportunity there. And I think... Um, you know, going back to Stefan talking about buying his groceries online, I mean, if many bad things came out of COVID, but from a consumer investor point of view, one great thing that came out of COVID is just people got so facile with the internet and so willing to, you know, buy stuff online. And also a lot of the trends around health and wellness, around sort of cooking at home, spending time with, I mean, they all speak to real tailwinds for a lot of key consumer uh, categories. So all of that in a nutshell has been good. If, if it can be, uh, you know, people buttoning down the hatches and riding out for six months, I think it's, it's, it's going to be a lot of opportunity going forward. Do you raise external capital or is it all internal capital between you and your, your founder? So we have contributed capital ourselves, but we've also raised external capital uh, from, from different, actually different places around the world. So, uh, without getting into you know too much of the detail, but we do have investors I think from about twelve or thirteen different uh, countries, including Australia and New Zealand. So um, yeah, it's all it's a fair amount of external capital, and then my co-founder and I also contributed capital to kick things off. 
Where, where, where do you sort of, you know, when you're thinking about looking forward now, and given there's a lot of opportunity seems to be flowing out in the tech space as, you know, valuations become a little bit more depressed, and yes, it might not be as immediate in, in say, the VC world or um, in pre-IPO entities, but what are the areas that are exciting you at the moment? So I think in the in the consumer space, um, very excited about companies and categories with this sort of real fundamental differentiation around the product. And so if you think about, you know, some of the early companies we talked about, like a dollar shave uh, that, you know, that James mentioned or a Warby, I mean, all of those companies effectively use contract manufacturing to take pre-existing stuff. Maybe it's as good as what the incumbent stuff was, maybe slightly better, and then just sell it through the internet and people like that. I think now what you're seeing is people want real innovation, like this actual IP in this, you know, mushroom-based burger that I'm eating. It's a special mushroom and it's got some kind of, you know, fungus to it that can only be found in some dark corner of Australia and it's got all of these nootropic properties. Or, you know, I'm wearing a sweater that's made out of some sort of very special, totally biodegradable material that's got IP and patent protection and everything around it. So I think in our space, we're starting to see companies that are really having true differentiation through both the IP as well as just the brand play, which was the first generation. And that's the kind of stuff that consumers are really starting to seek out now, whether it's in you know, sunscreen that you put on your body, whether it's food that you ingest, whether it's the footwear that you have. Because at the end of the day, you know, your basic consumption decisions as an individual you know, collectively have a pretty profound impact on what happens in the world. And I think that's just such a, such a macro trend that young people think about, whether it's climate, whether it's environment, you know, all of those things. And it's starting to seep into the decisions that they, that they make and that, you know, companies are responding to that with, with innovative stuff. It's an interesting thought, um, just the idea that, you know, voting with your money rather than, you know, I was just thinking of the context of recent um, local body elections in New Zealand where engagement was uh, left a lot to be desired. But on the other hand, you have this massive trend, as you say, where people are using their purchasing activity as a, a declaration of what's important to them, more so than ever before. And, um, and I guess the internet provides all this information and ability to, to, to look through and decide on what candidates or products it is that you're um, you're going to vote on yeah and i think you know another interesting is, is, thing that's yeah. happening i was going to say another interesting thing that's happening since he's he's not too far down the road uh, old uh, uh, lebron james uh, here in in la is that a lot of people that sort of have audiences and have passion around things are now getting into consumer products it's sort of a natural um thing for them to do to expand their careers and maybe things they're passionate about. So, you know, Courtney Cox has an organic biodegradable better for you line of stuff for cleaning your house. It's called home court or Scarlett Johansson just launched, you know, a line of skincare called outset. And, you know, one of, uh, you know, Noah Schnapp, uh, from stranger things, TV show that all the kids like on Netflix, you know, he's launched a line of, um, first product is a, basically a, a vegan version of Nutella that's got more, um, got more protein and it tastes better. And then you don't have this horrible environmental issue around palm oil. So that's, um, I know it's a slightly different segue, but you're seeing people with real megaphones who are getting into stuff that's fundamentally really good. And then that's resonating with their, 
their audiences and, and having quite a profound effect in certain categories. So it's a form of, I guess, in a way, it's impact investing, really, isn't it? What you're doing is you're looking for um, not necessarily environmental outcomes, but product outcomes that drive um, a market. Yeah, it's certainly a filter. I mean, we look for stuff. We're not, I'd say, impact investors per se as a label, but we do look for things that have a sort of better for you, better for the planet, just sort of top, top filter. Um and, you know, we can certainly help some of our companies through partnerships, you know, make them, uh, for example, plastic neutral if they're in the personal care space and so on. So, yeah, we're, we're returns driven, but that's a, a natural filter that we apply at the top. The, the fascinating one that I, uh, I've been looking at over the last, I guess, maybe it was catalyzed by COVID. It's not necessarily impact investing to the good or probably depending on who's talking about it, but some of these massively valuable brands around alcohol. So Dwayne Johnson and Ryan Reynolds putting their name on a gin bottle and creating a billion dollar company because, you know, gin costs nothing to manufacture yet they put their name on it. And it's, you know, our George Clooney, I think done, has done a tequila or something like that. It's, it's just incredible that they can use their, I guess, social media presence to create um, huge amounts of value for a product that's been around forever and tastes no difference different to anybody else's but um that digital branding and that megaphone i don't know i don't think they're standing on their megaphone talking about how good tequila is for you but 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 in a way they kind of are i I remember um didn't shack from my youth start a water company uh i think that went about i think he he might have um, you know, we're, we're not investors in this, but a company I always find really amusing that I think maybe LeBron James or some other well-known people are in. Have you guys come across Liquid Death? It's effectively water in a can. Uh, I'm not even kidding you. I, they could be filling it out of, the, out of the tap, but I think the latest valuation was about seven or $800 million in a few years. And the whole idea is, you know, you're a kid that's at some concert and you want to look cool at, you know, 660 uh, so what you do basically is you drink liquid death that comes in this sort of, you know, really sort of powerful looking can, but it's literally just just water. So um, yeah, lot, lots of interesting things going on. The, in, the in scary, the, the scary thing about um, the investment space is when you talk about a company that makes a can of water called Doctor Death and it's valued at eight hundred million, and that's US, so that's sort of one point five billion, let's say, Hiwi. I mean, that would be in the top 20 market cap of, New- of companies listed on the New Zealand Stock Exchange. I mean, it just really shows. I don't know what's um, more, uh, I guess, um, surprising. One, that a company that's selling water in a can can be worth that much, or the fact that New Zealand is so small and, and the world is a, a, a big place out there. And yet, um, and, and, and so sometimes we are, we are punching above our weight when you think of, you know. You yeah, know, I mean, look, what, what, 100 of, yeah, no, 100%, James. And I think that's really for Kiwi entrepreneurs and also, frankly, for people who are investing in the companies. The scale of the opportunity in a place like the United States is really unbelievable. And again, to take a local example, if you think about if I go to the local uh, Whole Foods here, I'm going to find Fix and Fog. In fact, I had a couple of Aussie friends staying with me about a month ago, and they're big into Fix and Fog. They're, they're basketball players and athletes. And so we went to Whole Foods uh, in Santa Monica, and we bought some Fix and Fog uh, product. And, you know, you think about uh, just how much that business could do in a place like the United States if you have all-door 
distribution in thousands and thousands of shops, plus you're on Amazon, plus you've got your own e-commerce. And I think that's what's actually really exciting is that you can solve a problem that might be quite a small problem around cleaning your teeth or what you put on your toast, but you can amplify that in a market like the US and you can build a great business, maybe 500 million to a billion dollars if you do it well and in a fairly you know, reasonable amount of time as well. Does it, does it still f- surprise, not surprise you, but make you, I mean, what you do is in, in, in your career, it's what I find really fascinating is as someone that is, I have no creative creativity, so I, I'm not ever going to suggest that I could have um, come up with these ideas, but sitting there thinking, I'm going to disrupt the peanut butter market, which is really saturated. There's lots of it there. Everybody knows what it tastes like. Or the nappy market, what Zuru did with their um, nappy brand. I mean, everybody knows what nappies are. They're, surely there's no way you can disrupt a nappy, the nappy um, consumption market other than make it a bit more... I guess environmental, but um, but yet, but yet, the the people are taking um, pretty benign products or things that we consume and 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 making them cool and and growing huge market share. One hundred percent, and I think what that really reinforces to to me, uh, James, even going back to the academic days, is all the levers that you have around sort of marketing to build a great company. So you know, let's take as table stakes that you have a pretty good product, but. If you go after the right target customer with the right branding message, with sort of appropriate pricing strategy, and you layer in some interesting angle of specialty distribution, ways of reaching customers, you put all that together, even though, okay, it's just another nappy, but somehow actually in the minds of the customers, it's really quite different. And again, not to oversell the the fluff end of things, but just to sort of make the point, there was a classic study that I think we could appreciate in New Zealand, a friend of mine did it years ago in, in London where they're looking at the effect of uh, branding on people's perception of beer. So you get a bunch of people in the pub and basically you give them eight glasses of beer or six glasses of beer, whatever it was. And um, what it is, everyone, every bit of it is, uh, is, is Foster's. Uh, and then so they're all drinking Foster's. They don't realize this, but actually um, when they taste it, they actually think it's very, very different when you then give them the name of the brand. So you're giving them all Fosters, but you're telling them, you know, one's Bud Light, one's Cause, whatever. And then they create sort of a, a map, which people do in market research, a perceptual map. Instead of all this stuff just being all clumped together, it's all over the place because when you think you're drinking Bud Light versus Cause, you know, you've got this, oh, I'm thinking about St. Louis and Cause and Bud Light, the horses and the, you know, Super Bowl ad, and somehow it creates this massive perceptual separation, even though in the experiment, people were literally drinking the same thing, which I think was Foster's at the time. So, you know, um, not again, not to oversell what I would say, the soft end of things, but it just shows you that the, the power of differentiation through branding and all of the bonding stuff we talked about. And if you layer that into a product that's truly a great product, like a, you know, Rascal and Friends diaper or like Etique, or like fix and fog, you know, then you can have a real winner on your hands. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, we, when you talk about it from a business and academic point of view, like like we are now, um, you think, you know, how can it happen? And then I go to the supermarket and buy a $7 bottle of milk from Lewis Road, which is no different from the $3 one. It came from the probably the same cow on the same production line, yet, yet you do because there's, there's value there. But it's... Um, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. It just it's, uh, it's human nature and decision making is fascinating. 
David, what I mean, what would you say to Kiwi entrepreneurs who are listening on the call who, you know, are thinking about the next stage? Are there any sort of sort of bits of advice you would give them in, in, in your journey so far? And particularly thinking about, you know, how do I how do I go to market and, and go to America? So the first thing I would say is, you know, definitely that should be on your on your radar. I mean, America is just the you know, the consumption engine in some sense. Of course, there are other markets in Asia, very big as well, Europe collectively, but America is just such a big consumption engine. And as we were talking before the show, you know, it's very accessible now. You can come to New York, LA, you've got all these jumping off points. New Zealand kind of has this, I think, this halo in North America. So number one, it should be on your radar to do it. But number two is more the caveat is superficially, the two countries are similar in the ways that we talked about earlier. We all speak English, we consume similar cultural products and everything else but the markets here are very nuanced and very different so you know you really do need to make sure that if you're coming in here that you're, you're doing the fundamental research you're teaming up with people who have understanding of the market and, and what's the right way to roll it out you know it's just a massive place you know do you start in houston do you start in la do you launch in new york city you know should you start in the interior of the country so all that element of execution i think is very nuanced um, and something that's really hard to understand just from a pure base in New Zealand. But, you know, selfishly as an investor and someone from New Zealand, there's nothing more than I would like to see New Zealand companies take that path and succeed because I think it has an outsized impact really for two reasons. Number one is, as we've discussed, you know, consumer entrepreneurship is super accessible. You know, you've got a great idea. You understand a pain point very well. All, all the enabling factors there are how... Are, are in place to help you deliver that product and take it, take it to market. Uh, and then number two, you know, the, there's a multitude of ways that those companies can scale and then be successful in terms of an exit and an outcome for the founder as well. So that would be my, uh, my advice to aspiring entrepreneurs is 100% have it on the radar, but just understand that in doing it, there's going to be some nuance and complexity that that's hard to understand from New Zealand. Uh, until you really come up here and sort of get your hands dirty a bit. Fantastic. David, look, it's been wonderful speaking with you, a really um, varied and interesting conversation, and uh, you've obviously um, involved in a, a wide range of, you know, great and cool activities. So, yeah, it's, thank you for your time, and, um, you know, we wish you all the best for, for the next phase and, um for, for, I guess, the, the uh, originating some really cool investment opportunities as you go. 100%. Well, look, thanks, Stefan. Thanks to you too, James. And, uh, you know, as we talked online and offline, it's, it's really nice to engage uh, digitally, but hopefully we'll all catch up in New Zealand at some point or up here uh, in person. So thanks for, thanks for the discussion. I really, really enjoyed it. Great. We can thanks, have a Foster's together. It. Yeah, I was going to say exactly <laughs> that. Yeah, you caught, you took my line. <laughs> Or maybe a, a, doc, a, a liquid death or something, perhaps. So, uh, <laughs> liquid death, 100%. Right. We'll, we'll do dry, uh, dry December. <laughs> yeah. Catch you later. Thanks. Thanks, Dave. Cheers. Thanks, guys. This has been The Monday Call, brought to you by NZ Funds. New Zealand Funds Management Limited is the issuer of the NZ Funds KiwiSaver Scheme. The NZ Funds Managed Superannuation Service, the NZ Funds Advised Portfolio Service, the NZ Funds Wealth Builder, and NZ Funds Income Generator. 
A product disclosure statement for each is available at nzfunds.co.nz. Past performance is not necessarily an indicator of future returns.